Hello, and welcome to Debut Spotlight. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of the brand new novel, Atomic Anna. And I'm super, super excited to have Courtney Mom on our show, on my show this morning. She is absolutely amazing and already dancing. I love her. I have to tell you that I met Courtney back in 2019. I was living abroad and I did my very first US book tour event with her. And I was so terrified and it was in a bar in Rhode Island. And she just looked at me and she took my hand and she said, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And I've loved her ever since. <laughs> so Courtney, I don't know if you remember that moment. Oh, Rachel, how could I forget? I remember that that was a little bit of a tough event because there were many people in that bar that didn't want to be there for our reading. Do you remember they were like <laughs> at, right. the, at the actual bar and we were sort of reading and there was definitely a vibe of I kind of just want to drink my beer. Like, who are these maniacs up there with the microphone? Reading. It was, um, and you were like, is it, is it always going to be like this? I said, you probably eight times out of 10, you know, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. But you were just so steady and strong. And thank you. Thank oh, you. Oh my God. Amazing. Anytime. So for people who don't know Courtney, I'm going to read a short bio. She is unbelievable. You need to buy all of her books. <laughs> Courtney is the author of the novels Costa Alegre, Touch, and I am having so much fun here without you, and a guide for writers before and after the book deal. By the way, I have recommended that book to writers about a thousand times. Thank you. If you are a writer, <laughs> aspiring writer, go out and get that. I'm going to say the title one more time, Before and After the Book Deal. Her writing and essays have been widely published in such outlets as the New York Times, O, the Oprah Magazine, BuzzFeed, and Modern Loss. She lives in Litchfield County, Connecticut, where she founded the learning collaborative, The Cabins. They are incredible. And she's recently published a whole string of personal essays on her tour of duty, as she calls it, mm -hmm. <laughs> in a number of amazing outlets, including The Guardian and more. Courtney, thank you so, so much for being here. Oh, it's um, such a night. It's so it's always such a pleasure to see you. And oh, yes, here we are. Here we are. Here's I'm the beauty. speaking to you live from horse country. I am in Versailles, Kentucky, which is right next to Lexington, Kentucky, which, you know, we are in Derby land. And in fact, Versailles is where Rich Strike, the Derby winner, um, was trained. And I, I think he's out there somewhere. But uh, so hello, Rich Strike. Good job, buddy. Hello. <laughs> So you are here today to talk about your debut memoir, as we said, The Year yeah. of the Horses. It is so beautiful. I love the cover. I love the book. Can you tell us what is it about? Sure. I think I can. I think I can. Yeah. You can it's, do that. Um, <laughs> so The Year of the, horse, the Horses is, I cheated a little bit. It's the year and a half of the horses. And it takes place right about, I'm turning, right before I turn 40 years old. And it might just absolutely started to unravel and it's about how returning to a childhood passion of mine which was horses in in my case and learning polo which was a wild thing to do as a fearful uh mom brought me back to a lost sense of of self and restored my access to joy and pleasure and goofiness and all of these things that had sort of been pulled out of me by America I think <laughs> yeah and it's um it's uh let's see what we call a I think a hybrid memoir or a braided memoir it has a lot of reported research on the um sort of privileged relationship between women and horses and 
men's attempt to tame both parties over time. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very timely, right? Yes. Talk about yep. Roe versus Wade and what Thanks, may be yeah. falling, right? Um, so it is a serious and heavy read, um, but also I thought very important and very strongly feminist. And um, I loved in the very beginning, you, you said you used the term that your check engine light had come on. And <laughs> yeah, and I loved that expression, but that you said you didn't feel that you could claim it because on the outside, your life looked, you know, beautiful. You had many things, you were very privileged. And so you didn't feel that you could check the engine, right? Yeah, I mean, I felt like, that. okay, it's okay to have a check engine light, but I just can't go to the mechanic, you know, like I kind yeah. of have to just deal with it because, you know, I'm a woman, fine, but I'm white. I, I grew up very, very fortunate in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, great education. And then, of course, you know, I realized my lifelong dream of becoming a writer. And, you know, I think having, I guess, the courage or perhaps the foolishness, I, I don't know which it is, to come out and say, like, wow, even when you realize your dream and you've reached a certain level of success, sometimes it's really hard, actually, to have realized a dream. Because then what happens is, in my case, when I became an author after wanting to be a writer for probably 30 years, um, all of a sudden your dream becomes your job and your relationship to your passion, it just necessarily has to change. And with Before and After the Book Deal, that's something I just wanted to come out and talk, talk about and have other people within the industry talk about what happens when the passion of your entire life becomes a job and all of a sudden your writing is meant to make money for you. And that's something that that started to lead to my unraveling in the book is that my my writing I was I was about to miss a, a book de deadline, um, and I just uh, I had the thing is I've been like very type A super self sufficient person and had been sort of lauded and applauded for being that way for such a long time and had many people including colleagues my husband relatives, my literary agent, a lot of people just thought of me as like, oh, she always gets her done. You know, she'll always rise to the occasion, no, despite the fact she has chronic insomnia and never sleeps. Like, she'll always just kind of yeah. nail it. And um, I had not arranged my life in such a way where there was time in the calendar for me to break down. But yeah, it was actually my body, I think, that just started to come apart before I, I could acknowledge it in my mind, you know? Yeah. So um, I think I don't want to skirt around because you are very forthright in the book. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us, like, what does that mean that you broke down? Yeah. What, you know, yeah. I happened? actually think it's interesting to talk about the physical ramifications because um, depression, I think we think about it cerebrally so, so often. But for me, I mean, I've struggled with chronic insomnia, unfortunately, since I was like prepubescent. So it, it started with an absolute inability to sleep, even with sleeping medication. So I'm, and you, you were know, trying everything. I, I was trying clear. everything. Like and I had, oils, I had drugs, yeah, alcohol, talk, talk therapy, acupuncture, um, and even talk therapy and serious sleeping medications. But I just reached a level of insomnia. It was, it really was like a race, a runaway racehorse. Even the pills, I could not sleep. It was like my I was making myself break down, maybe to signal to others. And then I dropped probably I was at I was at like 119 pounds, which is probably 19 pounds less than I am now. So 
not a healthy weight for me. Um, I developed irritable bowel syndrome. I just couldn't, I couldn't keep anything in. I couldn't really digest food. I started getting debilitating canker sores like all the time. So speaking became horrendously painful. I mean, you know, there's, there's other things, but it was uh, no picnic. And through all that, I had a toddler. I was touring with my husband for a film that we'd written together. And this was no small thing. I mean, it went to Sundance. And, and then I also was touring for my first book and was under contract for a second book that I only had a year to write. And I was working in marketing and advertising. I was the only breadwinner in my entire family. So, you know, um, Oh, and breastfeeding, you know, all, all the stuff, right? <laughs> Keep adding on. Yeah. Among, you know, social planning and cooking the dinner. So it just, and uh, fell apart. Yeah. And the insomnia was the first manifestation. And then it was just this debilitating depression, which I've certainly had sadness in my life before, but writing had always been kind of my safe house, my way out, the, my plug to recharge myself. And it wasn't, it just wasn't working anymore. It literally was like the current wasn't there and I could not recharge from my writing. It, the writing itself was a, a source of the sadness for the first time. And it was um, pretty yucky. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things that really struck me um, is that you also struggled with um, anorexia when you were younger mm -hmm. eating. So you mentioned now that you were 20 pounds lighter, right, than yeah. you are now. And, you know, as a child, too, and um, that with the anorexia as a child and now, right, as an adult, mm -hmm. um, like you're literally falling apart in front of people yeah. and no one is saying anything. No one right? said anything. Well, the one one principal. person said something. And the other day he was like, I'd like you to mention me my name. So I'm going to. It was Matt Summel who uh, author of Making Nice, who has a bad boy reputation, but is actually one of the sweetest people I know. He is the only person in my friend group. I mentioned him in, in the book. He pulled yeah, me aside at an AWP and he's like, what the hell is wrong with you? You look like shit. Like you look absolutely awful. It, the only person, um, you know, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot because you know, in many ways, no, you shouldn't be allowed to comment on people's bodies right mm -hmm. that's not great but at the same time here we are wherever we are in the pandemic i don't want to say post-pandemic but we're stepping out and we're seeing people who maybe look like they're having a hard time maybe they gained a lot of weight lost a lot of weight look bloated or clearly having trouble with alcohol right well whatever right. it is um right. what do it's, it's very hard to tell. Is there a window open through which I can sneak in and offer help or say something? Or does this right. person want to pretend that they're passing? Because there were moments in my life where, you know, especially if I was doing something professional, I, I wanted to pass as a healthy person, you know, as someone mm -hmm. who was well in the head and, and sort of succeeding. And I wanted to pretend that I didn't look as awful and gaunt as I looked to myself in the mirror. But then, you know, mm -hmm. with Matt's comment made me realize oh my God, I'm not passing. And in fact, everybody knows and nobody's saying anything to me, which made me feel even more alone, unfortunately, you know? Yeah. But thank goodness he did say something. Um, but for people who are listening who haven't read the book yet, the power of this memoir comes in the way that you describe these moments. And for me, the one that stuck out the most was really when you were a child and you um, went away for the summer, right? And that's when you really, you started swimming a hundred laps, right? And counting your calories, right? And you come back yeah. super thin. Nobody says anything, but then the principal of your school yeah. calls you in and she's the mother that you know well because you used to be good friends with her daughter. 
Um, and she's the only one that says something, right? But then oh, she's in this position that's... of power. She's the principal. But you described that so beautifully that that was the moment that I felt like Courtney has opened up, right? Taken down everything and let me into her life. Oh, yeah. That scene is, for me, maybe the hardest in the book because um, the principal in question was principal of the head of middle school and her daughter Kristen was my absolute best friend growing up until maybe I was eight or nine at which point I I, I just flat out like ditched her for the, the popular girls because we were kind of the nerdy girl, artistic girls and I mean it's it might actually be the number one regret of my life and it was I just thank thank God we've I just talked got the a lot. Goosebumps, by the yeah, way. we've talked tons since then, and she sent me. I mean, I I don't want to. It's it's her letter that she sent to me, but um, after because I gave her the book really early, and you know, I I will love her for the rest of my life, and I I need her back, and it was just the first mistake of my life, and so when her mom called me into the office, her mom was like a second mom to me, you know, and. Mm -hmm. She didn't confront me about why I ditched her daughter, you know, but she was right. confronting me about all this but weight I lost. But you were so lost. scared that she would. That's I, what I you were, right? I was so Well, I, had that I, but I also think I wanted her to because no one was calling me out on that either. And I, it was another noticeable thing in my life. Like, I've left my best friend for this gaggle of, of you know, popular girls and nobody's going to call me out on it. Not my parents. No one's going to be like, where's Kristen? And, and you know, that... Um, even though I was the one who was doing the hurting, yeah, it, it was so painful. It, you know, it just showed me where the real love lied and I turned away from it. And that I just thought, well, you know, this needs to be on paper. I mean, there's a lot of moments in the book where I just expose a, a parts of myself that are not very flattering. <laughs> but, you know, please, I mean, if someone has a memoir out there that makes them look, you know, like, their defecation doesn't stink. I think that's not the <laughs> memoir for me. I mean, nobody yeah. lives like that, you know? But that's, that is truly the power of this book is that I felt <laughs> like you just let us in, right? To that moment. Yeah. And I can just, even now, I t I'm not lying. I have the goosebumps hearing you talk about it in person because I can just imagine, and for women, for girls in particular, body issues, anorexia, right? For people, you see it. We have all seen it, right? Yeah. If we have not lived it. And and that question of, do we say something? Do we not say something? Because it means so much more. And I thank you for bringing that to the front, right? And oh, forcing yeah. us to question, do we say something when we see our friend, if she's 12, if she's 40, right? Yeah. Do yeah. I mean, something? you know, having been there, it depends on the situation, of course. But sure. again, sometimes in public, you know, maybe like AWP is maybe not right before you go on stage for a panel is maybe not the moment to say to someone like, your body's right. changed a lot. Are you okay? But right. maybe, maybe a letter, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the handwritten letter. And if you have a friend you're worried about, right. letters allow people to absorb information privately on their own time. Right. Um, and then decide to kind of control how and when they're going to respond. So if you are concerned about someone I mean, I think phone calls are nice too, like, but uh, the letter is 
you know, much better than a text. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. So, um, but of course you lead us to these dark parts, but then you talk about coming out of the darkness, yes. right? <laughs> Finding horses. And yeah. there's this hope, which I always love hope. Um, yeah, and, we need it. <laughs> yes, we need it. And you of course gravitate to horses. And before I ask you about horses and we talk about them, um, I want to say there's this one part where you're, you're discussing how you had, you've like 30 seconds at a time without fear. Mm -hmm. Right. These mm -hmm. horses. Yeah, maybe 30 seconds. Yep. Right. So I just want to be clear. We're not talking about, you know, Courtney all of a sudden going from, you know, terrible, you know, a, a moment that was bad to like, oh, yeah, no, it's not. It's not Seabiscuit. Mm -mm. No, we're talking about like 30 <laughs> seconds at a time. This is still day by day. And just that also that honesty was yeah. just very powerful. But OK, so talk to me about horses, how you came to horses. I would love to talk to you about horses. So there's um, when I was a little girl, I rode all the time. It was my life's joy. And when my parents split up when I was nine, a lot of stuff in my life and in the book happens when I'm nine, leaving my best friend, Kristen, my parents divorced. Um, and a lot of that had to do with my brother who has a developmental um, disabilities and really awful heart problems. And he was being hospitalized all the time. When I was nine, he was younger, about four years old. And more or less, I went to live with my dad and... Um, Brendan, my brother lived, well, he kind of lived in the hospital, but so a lot of things in my life changed and it's just, my mom wasn't really available to take me to see the horses anymore. And, you know, my dad was, was on wall street. So they, it just sort of stopped. And, you know, I was starting to become interested in boys. So it wasn't some great heartache for me. And then as I got older, I became quite determined to make my own path and not follow a model of what I was seeing in 1980s Greenwich, Connecticut, which was, you know, look nice, nab a, a finance dude and stay in Greenwich and rely right. on his money. Um, and so, you know, I took, I guess, the bohemian path. And but you left horses for a long time. I left horses. Yeah. And, and it was 30 years later, um, you know, when I'm 38 years old and just completely coming undone, I was at a birthday party for these toddlers and no one tells you when you're pregnant that you're going to have to spend so many years going to like awful children's birthday parties. <laughs> and I was sitting there. I hated that. I mean, like way. severely depressed. And these little toddlers are whacking a pinata, a little donkey with a baseball bat. And it's spilling its innards everywhere. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, I want out of every like this is not how I want to spend my one and precious Saturday. And this man came in. Uh, who I might never met. And he said, Oh, hello, I can't hug you. And, you know, in greeting, I just came from the barn, smells so bad. And something in my heart just exploded. And I was like, what barn? Where? <laughs> Give me the trainer's number. Because I've been trying all these things, you know, like dance classes. Um, I don't know, like I said, occupy. I've been trying things to try to get back to joy and nothing was working. And I took the trainer's number. I went out in the backyard of the birthday party. At this point, and, not only acupuncture, but you've been trying like medications, prescription Yeah, like drugs, serious talk like, therapy, couple oh, therapy. And it was one of those couples therapy everything. where we have to repeat what the other person said. I mean, it was all very yeah. painful. I went to clown school. Like I tried a lot of shit. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> this is why I love the memoir, right? Cause yeah, you just lay it out there. I like tried that. this stuff. And yes. I, I, uh, yeah, I set up an appointment with this trainer and, um, a lot of my 
to the chip on my shoulder about writing was that I ne I thought I could never go back to it because as a freelance writer, I was like, I'll just never be able to afford it. And I don't want to get into a situation where I'm addicted to something that's a financial burden on my family. Um, but I decided to eh, screw it. And um, yeah. And then, so I scheduled that kind of comeback riding lesson. And no, then I, I love I, that the comeback yeah. riding. <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't stopped since. And I, you know, the, I had to do a lot, like kind of a Goldilocks search to find barns and horses and kind of underground ways to ride because I was, I was on a restricted budget, but yeah, it, it was, um, it was like, oh my gosh, this is what I need actually is something that's just for me, you know, that has nothing yeah. to do with my kid, nothing, nothing to do with my husband. And even the fact that it was a, a little, that it takes financial resources oddly helped me because it stirred me back into go mode. Cause I was like, shit, Courtney, if you want to keep riding, you got to get that book in so you can get the next part of your advance. Otherwise, you right. will not be able to ride. And ever since then, you know, it helps me hustle and look oh, for freelance that. work because I'm now I have a horse. So I'm like, I got to meet the board every single month. I don't have right. some annual fixed salary. You know, I got to go out and find the money. <laughs> and it so it keeps me involved in in the world, you know. Um, yeah. And I love also, so you talk about the power of horses physically also. Yeah. And so there's this one paragraph that I just want to read. It's from page 62. If any of you have this gorgeous book, here it is. Um, and you write that horseback riding is good for the repairing and strengthening of a person's muscles is indisputable to most who try it. But the uninitiated are slower to recognize how a horse can help the mind. Frequently referred to as stealth therapy, interaction with horses has been known to benefit people who struggle with anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, and fearfulness because horses mirror human emotions. So I've never been on a horse. Yeah. I don't ever been, right? So this was like- so what does this mean? What? Yes. Yeah. So- the easiest way is to explain that horses have three ear positions, right? And if they're forward and kind of perky, it's like, hello, everything's fine. And if they're in the middle, it's, hmm, I'm a little unsure, but I'm not decided whether things are good or bad. And then if they're like this, it's very bad, bad, bad. Okay. And, and whatever energy you're bringing into the proverbial room or stable, they throw right back at you. So when I started riding again, I would walk, you know, they have long aisles and there's little stalls on each side where horses are. And I would literally walk by the horses and they'd pin their ears. That's oh. how much stress and anxiety oh, wow. I was carrying. And when I was on a horse, often they would like bolt, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, for the uninitiated means that they'd run off with me because I would get on and I'd block my breath from nervousness, mm -hmm. raise my shoulders, which pushes you out of the saddle and um, be too far forward and just not be breathing, which to a horse, which is, horses are very nervous animals. They're pretty mm -hmm. much always in flight mode would signal panic. There's something to be very frightened of. There's a predator run away. Wow. So your mind that thinks your anxious, depressed mind that thinks there's a predator tells the horse that there's a predator and none, mm -hmm. neither of you can actually see the predator and it just gets worse and worse. So horses, I mean, to this day have become the most therapeutic aid for me because if I want to get on one safely or even be around one safely, I have to lower my shoulders, be heavy in my body, be really deliberate with my breathing, slow wow. my heart rate and my cortisol levels dropped like wildly. So you Why can't cheat a horse. 
You cannot, cannot pretend. Sit. They have no idea what irony is. You literally can't lie to a horse. So that was the thing. Like I go to AWP, I see 200 friends mm -hmm. and I can lie to everyone and they're lying to me. And then I see a horse I've never met in my life. And he's like, girl, something's really wrong with you. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. They just, wow. they just don't lie. And you know, you like, I could walk into a barn and if I have bad energy and my husband's next to me who doesn't know anything about horses, you know, they'll go up to him and, and, and bicker because he's got a very calm energy. So it's, it can be heartbreaking when you love wow. horses. And so right. they're, they're very, very helpful for, for nervous people. And they've, there's incredible results uh, with equine therapy with vets, especially in people who have suffered extreme trauma because talk therapy, I'm all for it. It was very helpful for me. But some people are not going to find the way out through words. They don't yeah. want to talk, especially in the military, where often they're, it's sort of raised in an environment where um, you're not supposed to talk about anything. You're supposed to take commands. And so right. the idea of sitting on a couch and talking to someone about the military is kind of going against orders, where if you just, yeah. whereas if you interact with this large, beautiful beast, it's not asking anything of you. It's just sort yeah. of keeping you company. And people have, yeah. um, certain types That's of people amazing. have tremendous, tremendous results with equine therapy. Amazing. So you take it sort of even to a different level and into polo, right? The yeah. sport, the sport <laughs> of kings, as it said. Yeah. Um, and so I cannot believe how quickly time is running out. I could talk I to you for hours and hours, <laughs> but I want to make sure we get this in here because um, what I love about you going into polo is that um, you admit, right, you're not very talented, right? You're not going to be a great polo I've got player. a really good swing. <laughs> you got a good swing. Okay. But- <laughs> Right. Women have so much pressure to do everything perfectly and people in, in general, right? This is yeah. to do something because you're good at it. But you say, actually, why don't I play polo? Because I'm terrible and I just love it. Yep. <laughs> and yep. I, I love that, right? Message. So please talk to me about how I, you came to I that. Was, I was telling my agent, I'm like, is it, I think I wrote an anti-sports sports memoir. Um, <laughs> I'm like the bumbling hero that doesn't necessarily get better. I mean, I get better, but I mean, to me, there's just like, I'll always be proud of myself that I keep doing this thing that like, I'm not going to become pro. I'm not, I'm still scared. Um, but I just love it. And there's reasons that make sense to me why I love it. But you know, from the outset, it's probably like, why doesn't this girl give up? She keeps falling off. But it was the only area in my life where everything else, you know, at our age, especially and in America, when you're good at something, you have to become an influencer. You have to become an expert. You have to become a brand right. ambassador. And I just have, love now like I'm all about you know I, I go to like my daughter's talent shows and I see people and they're dancing on stage and you know they don't have that thing that you know they don't have that god-given talent but they have the passion and I'm more excited for them than like yes. anyone else yes. because you know it's that's joy and it's going to yes. remain sometimes if you're if you're just passionate about something but not truly talented then you get to keep this beautiful pure relationship with it yeah whereas you know for both of us and other writers listening the funny thing about having a talent at writing is when it becomes your career like i said at the outset you know your yeah. relationship to the writing itself changes you start to think about marketing and sales and that's a privilege someone wants to publish your book this is a huge privilege but once you have a book you're always going to be thinking about, will I have another book? Will the book fail? That will really yes. never go yes. away. Whereas but with, polo, with, with Polo, I'm like, 
well, I never have to worry about whether yeah. or not someone will hire me for the Florida season because they're not going to. So I know, you know, I love but that. I can I can warm the horse up that. for somebody else. <laughs> I love that. So I actually took up accordion a few years ago. I love that, and Rachel. I truly am <laughs> terrible. Like I'm, and people think that I'm exaggerating, but I am not, and I love it so much. That is so. When so I read great. that you, you know, that you felt that way about polo, I was like, we more people need to talk about that. You can I know, truly we need be a, terrible. A band. I love it. it. The sisterhood of the of the clumsy pants or something. I don't know. We'll have to come up with a name and just right. start a revolution. I love it. Right. Just do something for pure joy, even exactly. if you're terrible. Exactly. And that is okay to be terrible. Unless it involves like driving, you know, something. Oh, don't hurt yeah. other people with yeah, your yeah, terribleness. Yeah. Like I'm a very, I'm not yes. fast polo player, but I'm very safe. And like, I'm not okay. going to, because I do play with some people that are a menace to society. Like, it's yeah, important no. to be safe, whatever yeah. you're doing. If I'm not going to hurt anyone. Fine, but yeah, I'm not going to hurt yeah. anyone. <laughs> it just their ears. <laughs> okay. So we only have a minute and a half left. And all of my listeners love my last question. So I have to ask you, you have written an entire book of advice on how to publish, but mm -hmm. what is the advice that you would give someone in one minute for, you know, a new writer, maybe they're doing memoir or fiction. Okay. My advice is, if you're dead set on the traditional publishing path, agent and um, um, book deal, I'm sorry, I just saw a weird message. Um, expand your thinking a little bit. This is such a competitive time in publishing right now. Like it is not for the faint of heart. And we are so gifted. I mean, this is the silver lining of digital media. We have all these avenues, all these ways to get our stories out, YouTube channel, IGTV, a newsletter, a podcast, dance routines on TikTok. So start thinking about what, what, are, what channels actually bring you joy. And if it's performing in the street, maybe start a one woman show instead of trying to get your essay collection published. You know, think out of the box because the gatekeepers are going to tell you nobody's taking memoir, nobody's doing that. And they're not always right you know, and you might have to forge your own path. And the traditional book deal, it's awesome. It is, it is extreme privilege and fortune, but it is really hard. It's really hard and it doesn't always come with joy. So maybe take the reins and uh, create your own success story. That would be my advice. Courtney, I love that. And I advise everybody to listen closely and buy all of her books, in <laughs> particular, you. The Ear of the Horses. <laughs> thank Courtney, you so thank much, you. Rachel. <laughs> so much fun. I always love seeing you, hopefully in real life Ditto. soon. Yeah. All right. May you sell many, many copies. Inshallah. <laughs>